Hi, it's Mark Weiss. Today we're going to be interviewing Earl Ongman, the managing partner of Sierra Health Services, an anesthesia billing and collection company located in Stockton, California. Let's get Earl on the line. Well, I'd like to welcome Earl Ogman of Sierra Health Services to the advisorylawgroup.com podcast. Earl, how are, how are you today? Hey, Mark, I'm just fine, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, have a discussion about what's, uh, what the challenges of uh, the healthcare field is right now pertaining to whether it be anesthesia or other specialties, but specifically anesthesia. Well, I uh, am really grateful that you uh, agreed to be the uh, first person interviewed on the uh, interview uh, uh, type podcast that that uh, we we produce. So, why don't you start by telling us something about your company, Sierra Health Services? And I think that's a, probably a good place for us to start. All right. Well, I am um, historically I, I I used to work for Spring Anesthesia. I started in that billing business back in 1981. I was uh, I came out from Chicago actually and uh, was hired as an administrative assistant to um, to one of the VPs at uh, Sierra Health Service. I, I beg your pardon uh, to uh, Spring Anesthesia. Okay. And and as um, as the assistant, I had various responsibilities. Um, one responsibility was finding work for doctors, freelance doctors that had no no position. They back in the 80s, we had many more physicians that were uh, available were, were more or less what we called freelancers than we had <laughs> than we do now uh, and these freelance doctors um, would be on call uh, you know any day and night actually to go and fill in at uh, for some some anesthesia group or some anesthesiologist who was want to take the day off or had vacation or or uh, they just needed an extra person at the hospital uh, it was also a lot easier to get privileges back then. Uh, besides that, I used to. This was like before the time of uh, computers, and one of my tasks were calculating the charge for uh, for the doctors' cases as they sent them in. And <laughs> I was I was my own personal computer. Believe me, when uh, when PCs uh, started to hit the scenes for us back in the, it was probably the late '80s. It was a relief that I was able to have the computers do some of the things that I was doing by hand. You know, why were there more freelancers back then? Was it that um, there were fewer groups and there were individual doctors who were getting freelancers to cover for them? Or was it that uh, there were more, and we're talking chiefly about anesthesiologists, right? Because you, you built for anesthesiologists. Okay? Correct. Or, 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 or was it the case that there were more anesthesiologists than there were permanent slots, and so people were working as freelancers. Well, what's, what was I, I, I think, I believe that all of the above was true. We had, we had an abundance of anesthesiologists. I guess there was a period of time when the uh, schools were putting out uh, more anesthesiologists than there were positions, and so these physicians would come out into the marketplace and make themselves available uh, to various hospitals. Uh, some actually were recruited from from various practices to come and basically be a freelancer for them. Uh, there weren't as many groups, Mark, back back in the early 80s. Um, there were a lot of independent physicians working at hospitals. Uh, they had loose affiliations to cover a hospital. They didn't have a contract, per se, with the hospital. They may have had a contract amongst themselves to be this group, 
that you would join this group and this group would cover this particular facility or, or several facilities, um, but there weren't as many groups per se. There were a lot of independents out there. And at the time, uh, I, I guess anesthesia was viewed as a very lucrative field uh, from financially so that a lot of doctors would come out and wanted to go into it. Um, also, anesthesia is one of those specialties that you don't have to have an office. You go into the hospital, you see your patients in the hospital, and then when you're done with the service, the anesthesia service, that's your patient's gone. So these physicians didn't have any any patients that would be calling them, you know, every day like a like a family practice doctor might. But it was it, it was a time when there was an abundance. At one point in time, we had ninety anesthesiologists that were on my list that were basically uh, freelance doctors that would were, would want would love to have a call from me to send them on some some locum job somewhere. Um, and uh, of course, spring anesthesia at the time also had about fifteen hundred clients, so we had plenty of plenty of room as a, as a rule to send people out. Now that that did start to change um, as we got into the early nineties, um, but you know this is that was that was my learning curve in anesthesia working for spring anesthesia, and then spring anesthesia in nineteen ninety one I think it was was acquired by a company called Physician Support Systems uh, that actually uh, oh. Um, I ended up buying like 13 different billing companies and eventually selling that that entity to National Data Corporation. And to go from the late 80s to the early 2000, during that time period, um, we saw the big billing companies come into into play. When I started in the 80s, Spring was one of the largest in the country. And there were a lot of um, smaller companies. It was it was like a cottage industry uh, to do billing. Um, and and over that time period, from the from the early 80s through the 90s, we saw more combining of billing companies acquiring companies acquiring billing companies. I think if you look at um, Metaphys back uh, back in the 80s, uh, that now they're now they went to change their name to Per Se, and then were acquired by McKesson. All these companies were smaller billing companies back then, and uh, and now what we have, um, we're kind of top heavy. We have some large uh, anesthesia billing companies, and we have a few, I would say, mid-sized companies, national companies, and then you don't have as many of the mom and pop brand uh, billing companies anymore. And I think a lot of that is, you know, besides the, the companies that have bought them up, a lot of it now is due to the fact that the the government regulatory issues with the HIPAA laws and the high tech laws have um, have made it kind of expensive to get into the business and uh, and to stay on top of all these rule changes. And you know, it's a very dynamic industry to be in, and you really have to have the the resources to uh, the res- people resources and the technology resources to get into it now. And I started my company in 2000, and it was prior to um, the government really having coming forward with um, a lot of stringent rules that we now have to adhere to. And so, from from that date in 2000, when we we started till now, we've you know we've added oh about 300 clients, and uh, we're in eight different states. As a matter of fact, eight eight states in the District of Columbia. Um, and, uh, and it's really, like I say, it's, it, it, it pays, it pays to, um, go with a company that can stay on top of the, 
the um, legislative uh, changes. And, and so that's why I think that you don't see as many of the smaller companies anymore as you used to. Is, is the, the, the issue of geography, um, is the distinguishing factor you know, between doing business in one state versus another issues of that state's Medicaid, or are there other issues as, as well? Um, doing doing business in different states, there is obviously Medicare is not as bad as it used to be. There are still some um, uh, rules that are different from state to state, but they're readily accessible anymore on the internet. The internet's really changed uh, your ability to access information. You know, critical data is how to how to build certain procedures or you know what things are bundled, which aren't. Um, Medicaid um, is following a similar course, although there's still uh, you know, they're probably still have more differences, many more differences in, from state to state than the Medicare does. Uh, the, you need to, you really need to know uh, a little bit about the managed care uh, environment in the state that you're billing in. And again, though, the, the internet has made so much of a difference in working and coming up to speed um, on how to bill for various carriers in the in different states. So it's made it possible that we consider in, in California and do billing in Kentucky and Missouri and in Virginia as, as you know as states that we deal in, and uh, feel quite comfortable that we're doing everything appropriately. Do do, do clients um, in who, who are who are distant from you geographically do, do do they have a concern that there should be like sort of somebody you know on the ground here? Uh, is is that a concern at all? In other words, you know, they're, they're in, you mentioned Kentucky, that, that that therefore we ought to have somebody in Kentucky from our billing service in case uh, there are questions. You know, that that used to be more prevalent, but I think with the technology here today, that you, I don't get that as much as I used to. Uh-huh. Um, the, the fact that they can call me when they're off and being in California, we're still open. Yeah. Uh, they they don't seem to have an issue. We're also, us in particular, and I'm sure this is true of a lot of the larger companies, um, you know, if they need a meeting, we'll get on a plane and we'll have a meeting. Um, if it's if it's an urgent, uh, if they need something urgently, again, um, you know, usually a phone call or a text message and we're dealing with the with whatever it is that the urgent, caused the urgent meeting. Um, so I, it's not as, like I say, it's nowhere near as prevalent. And if you look at some of the nationwide companies now, yeah, they do have people in various states, but still they can't have people in all the states. And so, right. <laughs> you right. know, they're confronted with the same issues. And like I said, the internet and cell phones and, uh, you know, all that has made it quite, um, uh-huh. quite yeah, well, easier to, uh, deal with, uh, clients and their concerns. And, and again, the, um, and they're used to um, their patients are used to receiving bills from all all sectors of the country. <laughs> their billing company may be like in, in our case in California, yet the, uh, the the clients in Virginia and the bills are coming from uh, a California PO box. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's something that they're more comfortable with. I think it's not just the healthcare industry. I think that made people comfortable with it. But whether you deal with computers or you're calling your Hewlett Packard or somebody up and and talking to him. You're not you're not talking to somebody next door. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, what 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 do you think uh, are among the sort of most pressing challenges that impact not physicians but but physician billing and collection? 
Um, obviously, um, staying compliant, uh, dealing with the, the HIPAA rules and the high-tech rules, and, and we can go on and on with the various rules that you need to comply with. Uh, I think that that's the biggest one of the biggest challenges for physicians in the healthcare business is to com- stay stay compliant with these. And there's there's uh, any number of ways you can. Um, you know, there's plenty of consultants, consulting groups, or billing companies that uh-huh. that offer um, this type of education. And um, yeah, that that's one. And the other is you know the you know the late the healthcare. Um, Obama's health care plan, that that seems to be a challenge. People are kind of trying to, are struggling with where where they're going to land in this. What does it mean uh, to add all these millions of um, uh, patients to the the health care, to put them in the health care, cover them with insurance? Um, You see the uh, discussion many times of affiliate care organizations. And in particular, um, you know, I think all the specialists are, all the specialists are looking to see What's it? Where are they going to fit into this this uh, organization? Uh-huh. Uh, I know that um, you know some of our clients have been talking about combining, you know, merging groups to form a larger group that would be more attractive to an ACO or help them even develop their own ACO. Um, you know, I, although I don't think everybody really knows what it means or what it's going to do for them. You know, I see the government talking about um, about bundling. Uh, payments to practices to this very specialties um, in you know from what i 've read you know you need to um, you need to have a, a certain number of specialties you, you should have an affiliation with a hospital um, they 're talking about um, you know a lot of the um, uh, the success of an ACO is going to be dictated by the governance. Um, they're talking about some physician groups being physicians being more independent, and uh, may have a may have a hard time coming into what becomes more of a corporate atmosphere when they, they start doing the ACOs. So it, it's it, it's really you know, there, there's such this this dark area out there as we head toward the you know the full the full enactment of the healthcare uh, the healthcare initiative. Um, and people are just wondering, you know, what, how's it going to shake out? What's going to happen to it? Who's going to pay them, basically? Is it going to be like in the 80s when we were all worried about HMOs and uh-huh. everybody wanted to sign up with a, an HMO or an IPA or a PHO because they were worried that they wouldn't have any cases? Um, they were all going to get absorbed into these big organizations. Uh-huh. It's not dissimilar to uh-huh. that to that um, that time period. It's, it's, it's a little more refined. There's more specifics. That are being thrown out there, I think, than back in the '80s when when all these different um, plans were going on. And, and this one is not so much insurance payer driven. This one is going to be more physician driven, and that's what um, that's where the you know, the question mark: which physicians are going to be driving this vote? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think that there's a a combination uh, of uh, uncertainty as to the future and at the same time a worry that whatever the future is they the 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 group thinking this you know they won't be included so they're not sure what the future is oh yeah what that train is but they want to be on that train 
Absolutely. I mean, I would agree with you 100 percent. They're, they're yeah. not sure where it's going, but they don't want to be left standing at the station. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh-huh. and so that's that's why there's so many that you know, there there are some people being more aggressive and trying to to be proactive and prepare uh-huh. for it by um, by basically setting themselves up in a in a larger organization, making them more attractive to these uh-huh. to these ACOs as they start to uh-huh. form. And there's others that are still, you know, waiting to see which one would be the best organization to join. Um, and, 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 you know, I don't know. It's hard to say, Mark. Um, I don't think it's going to like be an end to the fee-for-service uh, practice, but um, it, it is going to take some steps, you know, steps in the direction of, of a pay-for-performance, lower cost for high-quality type uh-huh. services. This is, this is what... The, everything I've read about the ACOs are that's their goal: provide quality service for a low cost. Um, it's it's uh, you know like a Kaiser model. I would take it. You know they have critical pathways which are established, showing that if you come in with this diagnosis, you know ninety percent of the time if we treat you this way, it, it goes it's successful treatment. Ten percent of the time it doesn't, so it goes to the next pathway, and so on. Um, but Hopefully you are cured before it reaches the most expensive pathway, <laughs> but that's the type of information and the type of uh, plan it seems like that these ACOs are trying to accomplish. This is, these are their goals: uh, quality care for low costs. And um, um, and who uh, how, you know that's everybody's dream. <laughs> you know? I, I, I'm not sure whether you believe that. Uh, I don't. I don't particularly believe that. I I personally believe it's it's cost driven. And and um, um, quality uh, is what sells, uh, not cheapness. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that what, what the government is really after is cheapness, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the government views themselves as a payer um, in connection with a part of the quote healthcare system versus the healthcare market, or whether the government views this as one. Uh, Domino, if yeah. I could use that term, uh, you know, and the, the other dominoes uh, ending up with you know government control of healthcare, and therefore government becomes the only payer. Then cost becomes a, a tremendously important factor. Right. My interview with Earl continues on part two. 